Well, let's take our Bibles and turn together to the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews chapter 2. If you're looking in the church Bible, that's page 1002. Now, we're especially looking at verses 14 and 15 this morning, but let's read together from verse 10 to remind ourselves of the context. For it was fitting that He for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For He who sanctifies and Those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Back in the 1990s, 1995 to be exact, when I was still in high school, uh, uh, there, was a, there was a song that you heard, at least in the UK, you heard it all the time on the radio, uh, and uh, it was written by Joan Osborne. And the good thing about this song was that it was a great opportunity, it was a gift to Christians, really, to help to start up conversations. Here are a couple of the verses. If God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to His face? If you were face with Him in all His glory, what would you ask if you had only one question? If God had a face, what what would it look like? And would you want to see it if seeing meant that you would have to believe in things like heaven and in Jesus and the saints and all the prophets? And then the chorus, what if God was one of us? just a stranger on the bus trying to find his way home. Now, I really don't know what Joan Osborne was thinking. I don't know if she was being irreverent, whether she was betraying betraying ignorance. I don't know what the masses of the population who were listening to it heard. It was a very, very good tune, a memorable tune. But it asked a good question. What if God was one of us? And that question is answered here in verse 14 in the words that the writer gives us there. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Those words are picking up on and repeating and developing ideas that have been given earlier on. You'll see that from the opening, the opening words, since and therefore. They're pointing back to this developing argument. And the subject of the argument, the subject of these words, is none other than God the Son. 
that is, the Son of God, who is also God the Son. The word children, there in verse 14, has just been used previously in a quotation from Isaiah 6, the children God has given me. Those children are the brothers mentioned in verse 12, the brothers and sisters who belong to the church that are mentioned there, and they are also the sons, that is, men and women, boys and girls who are adopted into God's family and belong to Him, and whom God is bringing to glory through the pioneer of their salvation. And so, all of those words, all of that language so far has been leading us to think of how it is that God the Son became the one who has children, who has sons and daughters, the one who has brothers, the one who is bringing these ones with Him into glory. How did that come to be? And then buried in that, in that previous passage are these words, that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. What is that about, and why is that important to us? Now, as we come to verse 14, those ideas that have been developing in the passage are now coming to a head, or they're going to be fleshed out, literally fleshed out, as we'll see in what comes. And as we make our way through these two verses, I want you to have the outline of where we're going in your head. Because here we're being told that the divine Son took our humanity, that He might in turn take our mortality, that He might in turn take on our enemy. First of all, the divine Son took on our humanity. Let's read it again, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise partook of the same things. Now, what's the matter here? What is the subject that's being introduced here? It's a subject we talk about at Christmas all the time. It has to do with the incarnation of the Son of God. The incarnation means the carne, the flesh, the enfleshing or the enfleshment of the Son of God. We think of those words in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's what we're talking about at Christmas when we think about God coming down and being found in the womb of Mary. And uh, in, this, in this 14th verse, we're reminded that the purpose of that incarnation is to share in our humanity, our identical humanity. Now, this is very interesting because it raises this question, why is this happening? And the answer lies in the teaching that we were looking at when we were at chapter 1, but because there we were reminded that this is a movement of God out from Himself, out towards us. Now, let's remember what we know about God. Jesus once had uh, an experience. He was making His way through the shortcut from Galilee down to Judea, and that shortcut took Him through Samaria, and 
he found himself at the well of a well of a little village called Sychar, and he was hungry and thirsty. He packs his disciples off into the village to get some food, and he sits down by the well, and a woman of Samaria, she's not a Jewess, a woman of Samaria comes along, and they start up a conversation. This all goes on in the conversation. But the interesting thing for us is this, that with that woman, Jesus tells her something that takes us to the very heights of our understanding of God. He told her something very exalted about God. She got the first, she got a master class in theology proper, which is uh, the doctrine of God itself, because he said to her this, he said, God is spirit. In other words, God is not material. He is not made of stuff, whether it's this stuff or this stuff. God is not made of anything material. I asked the children earlier this morning when I went downstairs to talk to them during the first service, uh, if, if, you were, if God were to be here, what would be the first thing that would come into your mind? And one of the children said, wouldn't be able to see Him. God's invisible. That's exactly right. God is invisible. You cannot see God. Not only is He invisible, He's intangible. There's nothing to touch. God is Spirit. And if you can imagine a situation where we all get to heaven one day, and uh, we're told we're going to see God, we all get to heaven, and there, there He is. <laughs> where? I mean, we'd be looking around. God is invisible to us. The Bible makes it very clear in John chapter 1 and elsewhere, no one has ever seen God. No one. Moses did not see God when he saw the afterburner of the glory of God because that was a created thing that God used to get his attention. So if we're going to see God, what we are reading this morning is absolutely vital if we're ever going to have a meaningful interaction with God as creatures such as we are. And what we're told here is this, that the whole Trinity together in all, of its, all, all of its operations towards us acts towards us through the person of the Son of God as He takes on to Himself our humanity, our identical humanity. You notice that word, likewise. Therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. He Himself, likewise, just like them, partook of the same things, flesh and blood. In other words, this Christ is no phantom. This Christ is not simply appearing to be human. But if you poke him, or that's a Scottish word, if you do that to him, whatever that word is in, in American ease, uh, you, won't, you won't feel anything because he's just appearing to be human. Nor is he a superman who looks like Clark Kent until he takes his spectacles off and then, I'm not going to do it, Christy, <laughs> tears his shirt open and you see his S, and then he flies off. 
He is no superman. He is enfleshed with our flesh. His is real humanity. Look at the way that it's spelled out for us here in verse 14. You can see it. The two words that are used here are the word share and the word partook. The children share in flesh and blood. The very shape of the Greek here me is uh, it's perfect for those who, who know Greek. It points to something that's constant to the human situation. We are flesh and blood. That's what we are from the beginning of us. We are flesh and blood. We share that with one another. We are creatures, and we are human, and we've always been human, and we'll, we'll always be human. We are human beings. We share flesh and blood. But do you notice when it refers to the Son of God here, there's another word used. It's this word partook. And this refers in the Greek to something that has happened in the past and has ramifications and implications right into the future. But it is an event. It's a historical event. It's a unique once and for all event that happened in the past. He partook. He did not share this with us for eternity or for any period of time. He took, partook of our humanity, our flesh and blood, and He did so willingly. He did so voluntarily. He did so freely. So, here's the flow of this book so far, that He who is true God, He who is invisible, He who is creator and preserver and redeemer and the father of these children that are mentioned here did not allow His excellences and His attributes and His qualities and His godhood to come into the way or be a barrier to His condescension, His self-humiliation, His humbling of Himself to the point of taking our flesh and blood. That's an amazing movement. And again, he did this voluntarily, willingly, freely. There was no pressure on him to do this. There were no orders to drive him to do this. It was his free and willing action. Now, it's important for us, therefore, to remember both what did happen and what did not happen when Christ partook of flesh and blood. He did not cease to be God the Son. There are some key ideas that were introduced in chapter 1. You may remember them. One of them is that God does not change. I am the Lord. I change not. There in chapter 1, there's a quotation that's used, and it's applied to the Son of God, to the Lord Jesus. You, Lord, you laid the foundation of the heavens and the earth. They will perish, but you remain. They will be changed, but you are the same. And what it's saying there is that the Son of God has all the qualifications of God. He has all the attributes of God, all the characteristics of God. One of them is that He does not change. Another of them is that He does not feel the way we feel. God doesn't love the way we love. God doesn't have that tingling up the back, your back, 
bone. If you've ever fallen in love for the very first time, you know, and you see the person you love, and you feel this, no shouting out, we're Presbyterians here, that, ting, that tingling up the back, your back and so on. When we feel, we feel through a body. We feel through the enfleshment of our body. When we're afraid, there are second, certain chemical changes that take place that make us fear. When we're excited, there's all kinds of electronic things going on in our synapses, and there's all kinds of things going on with our thyroid and all the rest. We experience feeling through the body with which God, with which God has given to us. And we cannot, we cannot even imagine feelings apart from our creaturely existence. God does not have creaturely existence. God wills to love. He wills to be angry. He wills to show mercy. He wills to act on our behalf. But He is not, He does not feel. When He uses that language of feeling, it's so that we understand it. It's not an absolute statement of what He does or is. So there's a sense in which we can never say to God, you don't know how I feel. And the Lord Jesus Christ takes on our humanity, humanity which does have feeling and which does change. You look at your baby pictures and you'll see you've changed. We are all changing all the time. That's what it is to be human. We are changeable creatures. And so it says here, did you notice that this eternal Son has joined Himself to, to something that is made of flesh and blood? He partook of the same things that we have. The, the person of the Son of God is united with and acts out a human life in all its details through the humanity created for Him by God the Father, planted in the womb of Mary by God the Holy Spirit. So the triune God acting together with Christ, as it were, at the forefront in this particular action, in that union of two natures in one person. So, whenever we read of Christ in the New Testament, we have to know that there are these two natures in one person. We can't even get our heads around that. You're okay if you can't do that. What is new is, is this humanity, the humanity of Christ. And He assumes our humanity to accomplish the mystery of our redemption in a nature that changes. God the Son allows Himself to weep at the grave of Lazarus. God the Son feels hunger and thirst as He did in Samaria when He met that woman there and asked her for a drink. God the Son feels pain through the human body that He has, through His humanity as He hangs upon the cross. God the Son enters into our human experience. He assumed our nature he who was rich for our sakes became poor. I want you to think about the fact that He has two natures. I need to 
to also say this, just to, be, just to cover it in case you begin to think the wrong thing. These two natures united in the Son of God do not bleed into one another. The characteristics of what it means to be a created being, a human being, does not bleed over into the nature of God because that would mean that God would change. If God changes, it's not God anymore. Nor does the deity of the Lord Jesus bleed over into the humanity of Christ, or He would cease to be human. He maintains His perfect deity and His perfect humanity. All the while, He is running the universe. The same time as He's living living out a human life through the humanity of the man Christ Jesus. We look at the man Christ Jesus, and as we look at Him, we think, this is both the man Christ Jesus and the Son of God enfleshed. And we worship Him as Thomas did, my Lord and my God. So, he assumes, he takes, he took on our humanity, and he took on our humanity, do you notice, in order that he might take on our mortality. Let's read it again. He himself likewise partook of the same things that, in order that, through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, do you notice that we are being told here what is the primary purpose of the incarnation? Why did Jesus become human? And it doesn't tell us that he became human the way we do when we perhaps go from here to some a part of the world that is very, very poor, and, and we, we try to reach people and show our love and affection towards them and so on. Uh, we often use that comparison, but that is not the purpose Jesus came. That is not the purpose Jesus came. He didn't just come in order that He might say, well, I know what it's like to have, to have uh, an upset stomach when I've been eating too much. I didn't, I didn't come so that you, you, you might touch me and know that I'm empathizing with you. Those are ramifications, but that is not the purpose He came and took our flesh and blood. The text is telling us why He came, it is that through death He might destroy him who is the power of death. It is for death that He came. The purpose of the incarnation was that the Messiah, as the second and last man, the second and last Adam, should die. God cannot die. Only human nature can suffer and die. God cannot suffer only human nature can suffer. So, he played the man, and he played it to the full, and he entered into those feelings, and he felt those feelings. He entered into all of our experience. Particularly, he came to die. Alcyon said, he partook flesh and blood so that he might be enabled to taste death for the children's salvation. And in his enfleshment, in his nature, he was able to die. His human nature set the stage for the performance of the greatest cosmic drama of the ages, the very center of human history, the ultimate rescue of humanity from its most dreaded enemy. He died. 
and it was the death of this one. It was the death of this incarnate Son of God. It was the death of this sinless and truly innocent human being who died a death that was not due to Him. It is in that death and in this person alone that our hopes are based and built. Here is the righteous one dying for the unrighteous. Here is the godly one dying for the ungodly. Here is the innocent one dying for the guilty ones. And it was precisely this death by this specific person that was necessary to overthrow and destroy the one who held the power of death. Because the divine Son took on our humanity so that He might take on our mortality and die in order that by His death He might take on our adversary, our enemy, the devil and death. Let's look at how this is spelt out. His death spelt the death of death. We're introduced here to Satan, the devil, almost casually. But in the Bible, that's about as much importance as the Bible will give to the devil, however bad he is, however great he is. He is a personal power, a spirit of great and high origin, a spirit not in the sense God is, but a created spirit, a spiritual entity. God is not an entity. He is the leader of the forces of darkness and the powers of hell. He is the moving mind and spirit behind the organized kingdom of Antichrist that includes both demonic powers and human resources. These evil cosmic forces are opposed to righteousness, and they amalgamate together regularly against the Lord and against His Messiah, Jesus. And Satan is associated with death. You think of how he's described in the Bible. He's described as a deceiver, The first one to insinuate error into the mind of Eve there in the garden has been insinuating error into men and women's minds all over the world. That's why we will believe a lie rather than the truth. He is a deceiver. Why does he deceive? He deceives so that people believing the lie will be cast into hell. He is the accuser. He is the accuser of the brothers. He accuses you to yourself. Why? He wants to rob you of your joy and your peace and your assurance. He accuses you to other people. Why? So that your character might be assassinated, your name misrepresented. He accuses you before God. Why? He wants God to look at you and to see your failure and not and forget about His promises of pardon. He is an accuser. He's a destroyer. He destroys everything. Everywhere He goes, He causes chaos. That's why there's destruction in the world. That's why there, is, there, are, there are these great forces of evil in the world. He is behind them. He is feeding them. He is feeding the powers of state and society and culture all the time in order to bring chaos and disorder in the world and destroy people in the process. Because ultimately, He is the murderer The Bible says he is a murderer from the very beginning. He brought men into sin, and sin brought death to the world. 
He is a murderer. And Christ came into the world to take on our enemy. Now, I need to remind you, of course, that God and Satan are not two equal and opposite powers. The power that Satan has is is not an absolute power. The the fact of death, of course, is the sentence spoken by God against humanity that has transferred its allegiance from the Creator to the creature, humanity that's turned its back on God's road to life and insisted in going and treading Satan's road to death. And behind the power of death lies the righteous judgment of God against sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin came into the world, and death by sin, the Bible says. And in this world, because, it's a, the, because of the moral structure of God's universe, penalties have to be met before sin can be removed. And so what we need, because our first man Adam sinned, we need a second Adam. We need, we need another man to act on our behalf. It has to be a man. It was in a man that everything went to pieces. It must be in a man that everything is put back together again. And so the New Testament teaches, as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. In Christ, as the sinless and obedient man, in Christ, as the one who dies in the place of his guilty people. In Christ, the justice and love of God prevail. In Christ, because he is both human and divine, the demands of God's law are met. The commandments are obeyed on behalf of his people. The penalty is exacted on behalf of his people. In the language of John Calvin, our most merciful God when He willed that we be redeemed, made Himself our Redeemer in the person of His only begotten Son. And it's because of that that we are acquitted. We are pardoned. This is our acquittal. The guilt that held us liable to God for punishment has been transferred to the head of the Son of God. There's this great passage in Colossians chapter 2, you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven our trespasses. How did He do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us. He did this by laying it aside and nailing it to His cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to an open shame by triumphing over them in it, in the cross. It's the picture language of an ancient battle between two forces, and one wins. And all the prisoners are brought there, and they're told to strip off all their armor, throw down all their weapons, and the armor and the weapons are taken, and they're put up on the battlements of the city to show everybody all around who has won, who has been stripped of their power. And on the cross, as Jesus died, the powers of hell were vanquished. Here was one man who died, into whose ear Satan, who is the accuser, 
could not remind him of the sins he'd committed when he was two or twenty-two or forty-two or sixty-two or whatever. Here was one man over whom Satan did not have a foothold. And he was dying for you. He was dying for me. And when he rose from the dead, it was as if Satan was stripped of all his powers. For those who are Jesus' people, Satan has no power over them. You see, death in the Bible is a threefold thing. There's physical death when you separate the soul from the body. There's spiritual death when the, when the soul and the body are separated from God spiritually. And there's eternal death when the soul and the body are separated from God forever. And that's ultimately the punishment that Satan has. That's what he wants to wreak in your life and mine. He wants us to get to that eternal death. And by the death and resurrection of Christ for the children, for his people, he was stripped of that ability. He cannot, he cannot ever bring Jesus' people to eternal death. And spiritual death is immediately overcome. You who were dead have been made alive together with Him. If you have any thoughts of God, any love for God, any love for the Lord Jesus, any trust in Him, that's evidence of spiritual life. You've already been made alive. You have life now. And when that day comes, when Jesus comes again, at the end of history, when He comes to raise the dead, when the Lord Himself descends from heaven with a shout, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ rise first, and we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air, and that day when we are all transformed and given new bodies with which to express for eternity, all the emotions of joy and happiness and love. Then we'll realize that Christ, by His death, broke the power of death by breaking the power of Satan. You see, He became like the children by partaking of the same things, so that by death He might deliver those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Fear of death. Woody Allen said, it's not that I'm afraid of death, I just don't want to be there when it happens. But fear of death is a reality. It's a reality all the time. Shakespeare understood it, that dread, that dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to others we know not of. That sense of non-being. That strikes fear into the hearts of even the boldest people. Jesus once told the story of a, the parable of a strong man who kept his house and its goods in peace. 
It was a picture of the devil, really, and the souls of people. The devil keeping his people around him, keeping them locked up. And Jesus says, while, while the man is there, the strong man is there in charge, everything's going fine for him until a stronger than he comes. And the stronger than he breaks open the doors, casts out the strong man, and frees those who were his captives. And that's precisely what Jesus has come to do. Satan, in a sense, makes us afraid of death because we're afraid of what will happen afterwards. Bertrand Russell said, there is darkness within, and when I die, there will be darkness without as well. Is that, is that your fear? Is that your fear of what will happen? Oh, of course, we, what we do is we try not to think about that. It's the last thing we talk about. The Victorians were always talking about death and never about sex. We talk about sex, but never death. But death is that we, we, we're going to face it sooner or later. Some of you may face it instantly and early. And the Lord Jesus Christ has come to deliver us from that fear of death. You know, one of the ways in which we cover up our fear of death is by using euphemisms. Christian science is a, is a false religion that doesn't believe in the reality of suffering or the reality of death. It's a passing from one sphere of living into another sphere of living. The word passing is a Christian science word, and for some reason that is beyond my comprehension, is being used a lot by Christians when they talk about their friends passing. It's just because it's the word that the world has picked it up, and now we are using it as well. We shouldn't be using a Christian science word. Really, really we shouldn't. And, and the other thing, we have funeral services, but no, they're no longer funeral services. They're celebrations of life. Of life? You know what's in the box at the front of a service? When it's a dead body in that box. When I was a student, I used to work in the summers in a, in a hospital, and one of my jobs in, that, in the ward was whenever one of the patients died, I had to go and clean them up, tie them up, get them ready for off. And they're dead. They're really dead. There is nothing about a celebration of life at a funeral. We want to be able to look the world in the eye and say, we know what's going on here, and you need to face up to what's going on here. Death is the final enemy. And as we gather around that dead corpse, and we think of that dead body, the believer thinks God is not going to forget that body, and neither are we because that body is going to be raised on the last day, transformed, and made fit for eternity. God will not forget this body. Therefore, we're going to be here with these grieving people and support them as they remember the, the personality that once inhabited that body that is now in glory, being kept safe for that resurrection morning when the dead in Christ shall rise. Our Lord Christ has risen 
The tempter is foiled. The legions are scattered. The strongholds are spoiled. Oh, sing hallelujah and joyful and sing. Your great foe is baffled, Christ Jesus is King. O oh, death, we defy thee. A stronger than thou hath entered thy palace. We fear thee not now. O oh, sing hallelujah. Be joyful and sing. Death cannot affright us. Christ Jesus is King. The Lord Jesus Christ took our humanity, that He might take our mortality, and in dying, take on our enemy, and overthrow it, and overthrow Him by His triumphal resurrection from the dead. This is good news. It's good news to know that to fall asleep here is to wake up in glory. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. To know that there will come a day when the shout is given and the dead arise, and we shall be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. And what is mortal will put on immortality, and we shall be changed. We shall be changed. And all of that through Him who loved us all so well, our dear Savior. And when we get to heaven, we shall see God. He will be recognizable to us. We shall see the man Christ Jesus. And in seeing Him, see the Father. For if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And there present to us in His humanity is the beauty and wonder of God incarnate. Let's pray. Father, we pray that by the help of Your Holy Spirit, You'd help us to grasp the mysteries if not exactly understanding them, at least to be awed by them and overwhelmed by them and full of joy about them. Thank You that our Lord Christ took on our humanity, that He might take on our death, and that through death He might destroy the works of the evil one. Help us to live in the joy of that, the hope of that, not as those who are without hope and without God in the world, but as those who know and one day will be known by you and by the angels and archangels and all the hosts of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.